Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. So, we know now today, as of... uh, You've been hearing on the news, Michael Brendamore, chairman of the Board of Hockey Canada, has said he's stepping down. He's not going to wait until November when they have another election for board members. He's stepping down now. And I think he's doing exactly the right thing. And the other members should consider doing the same, as should the executive. But I'm not going to get ahead of this. I want my guest to talk about this. I just want to give you a little bit of uh, information here in case you haven't heard. Former Supreme Court Justice is going to investigate the organization Hockey Canada, while provincial counterparts and Canadians nationally are expressing anger. Some in polls that Hockey Canada used membership dues, monies for membership dues, to settle sexual assault claims out of court. $8.9 million since 1989. $8.9 million. So what should we really do about Hockey Canada and about keeping sports safe and respectful in this country? You know, there's hockey in Canada, and then there's hockey Canada. Hockey in Canada is something that matters to each and every one of us. Hockey Canada has disgraced hockey in Canada. Sheldon Kennedy is a former National Hockey League player whose story is well known of um, being a victim of sexual abuse by his coach. Sheldon Kennedy is co-founder of Respect Group, Inc. You'll find them at respectgroupinc.com. And uh, respectgroupinc.com argues for respect in sports, the workplace, keeping girls in sports, and just doing things the way we expect them to be done. 2018 junior team, 2003 junior team. The only ones? Don't think so. Sheldon, thank you very much um, for coming on the program. Great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Roy. How does it, may I ask you this? How does this... How do these? How does the story, this development, affect you personally? Because when you informed Canadians, when you selflessly shared what happened to you and 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 your history, personal history, with Canadians, and you did it very publicly, the hope was, the expectation was, that things were going to be changing and changing meaningfully and stay changed. Um, how, how does this affect you? Well, I, uh, you know, it's been interesting. Uh, last couple months for sure in in my in my head <laughs> i don't know how else to put that but uh you know it, it's uh you know i i guess when you know when i came forward um you know i i i came forward for one reason well probably two reasons <clears throat> was to uh you know to not only save my own life but to to try to do everything i could so that this didn't happen to others and i think you know when when my story broke, um, you know, I know Hockey Canada. I mean, I've been working, you know, with them, not with them, but I mean, I guess inside of hockey for uh, a long time. And, and we've been trying to get, you know, trying to get, you know, the a lot of things done. And I think there was some, some decisions made back then where it was, okay, let's educate every coach across this country. And, and so that task was done. But I think that was all that was done for um, many, many years, 26 years since I told my story. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really disappointing, uh, to me, and I think probably the most hurtful is the fact that, you know, we've known for a long, long time, um, that, uh, you know, players and junior hockey players, especially, uh, once they get taken away from home in most cases and, uh, you know, put into a billet family had no knowledge, no training, and and there was no expectations laid out for them on how to behave around these issues. Now, yes, there's you know there's 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 basic 
teachings that need to come out of the home, I understand that. But to me, I guess where I'm coming from is we can do all the training. The grassroots hockey can do all their training. They can train all the coaches. They can train parents. They can train whoever they want. Uh, on these issues, but they never have the impact they are they're intended to have until the leadership of the organization say that this is critical. This is the number one importance to be part of our organizations, and that is what hasn't happened. Yeah, it's it's awful. It's sad. It's it's depressing. It needs attention. And I know they've said that the uh, Supreme Court justice is now going to be investigating former Supreme Court justice. I think Canadians want something more fundamental than what it done now. Let me uh, let me ask you this, Sheldon. Michael Brindamore, board chairman, stepping down now. Significance of that? And is he setting the example the rest of the leadership of Hockey Canada should follow today? Well, I think so. I mean, what I what I read in in uh, Mr. Brindamore's statement was that he heard Canadians. And I think that that's important. I think Canadians need to be heard uh, uh, in this regard. And and I think that uh, his decision uh, to step down was the right decision. I think not only, uh, you know, for, um, you know, for the board of Hockey Canada, but I think for hockey in general. I think um, there needs to be a significant um, change um, to gain the trust back of the country. Um, you know, people that, you know, believe in hockey, that, you know, as you said at the opening of your show, that, you know, hockey is the national sport. Hockey is something that is in our blood in, in a lot of, you know, probably 90% of Canadians. And, and I think, you know, to be able to get that trust back, there has to be a significant change. So I, I hope that um, by Michael Brindamore stepping down, uh, it sets the tone for others to follow uh and i you know i mean and i think at the end of the day like you know if we look at the ceo scott smith i mean he's been with hockey canada for 27 years and he's been the chief operating officer or higher for the last 15 so you know it's not like they're coming in fresh and he's only been on the job 27 days uh he's been there a long time and i think you know he and i think one of the challenges i feel that um you know is is that you know it's got to be a board decision to release the CEO. And I think that, uh, you know, that is not, that's something that's not happening. And, and uh, you know, I think that, uh, um, you know, we need that leadership from that board. They're in place. That, this is what their hand up to, to say, yes, I want to sit on the board. It's because of this and because of governance. And, you know, so to me, um, this is the time we need their leadership and their guidance is, is, is now. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, since 1989, Hockey Canada has spent $8.9 million by their own admission to settle sexual assault cases. $8.9 million. A lot of that coming from uh, parents' uh, fees to get their kids to play the sport. Parents have dreams. Kids have dreams. They think they're joining this magnificent organization that represents Canada, ultimately has the national team on the ice, and we all cheer, we all wave the flag, and we feel really good when we win. We feel really good looking at them because they represent us. They represent what Canada is about. As I said earlier, there's hockey in Canada, and then there's Hockey Canada. When you think about that, $8.9 million, Sheldon, since 1988 to settle sexual assault claims out of court. That alone suggests to me that anybody who's been with that organization at the executive level for that time period has got to go. It is a significant amount of money. And, and uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I've been part of the Graham James uh, cases. I mean, you know, when yes. Graham James was, was convicted, and, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not any secret. But, I mean, you know, I, I was part of a, a civil settlement uh, with, with hockey, and so was all the other victims of Graham James uh, after he pled guilty. Um, but, I mean, I think at the end of the day, what it, what it tells me is that there is a significant issue here. And to me, if that doesn't make the organization make this a number one priority uh, in their organization, uh, I don't know what does. And, and you know, and again, I keep going back. I mean, you know, we can we can look at you know, oh, this wasn't enough. And, you know, when we saw the action plan that was put out, I mean, you know, it's basically 
you know, crisis management consultants put, putting out a nice action plan. And, and I think, you know, when we look at that, you know, this, these issues, this falls squarely on leadership. That's the CEO, the leadership team of Hockey Canada, and, and the board. That's where, that's where this falls. It falls on them because that's where these issues are today. They're not in, just in HR. Back when, when I told my story, they were nowhere. I mean, you know, HR might have had them on the, you know, on the bottom, bottom drawer of the desk and underneath two feet of paper and had to scramble to figure out what to do when a disclosure like this comes in. But, you know, what I know about these issues today is that there's a different expectation from, from society, from, from community, from people, that we're transparent, we're open, and we're honest, and we're truthful about these issues, all of these issues. Yeah. Sexual assault, all forms of abuse, uh, all forms of discrimination, harassment, etc. And I think, you know, what happened here um, is, yes, there's the money and yes, there's the pale. But I think bigger than that, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the systemic culture that allowed that to happen. It's that systemic culture that, that said, this is okay. It's okay. And this is the right decision. And I think that is what's wrong in this piece that is what i think is is what gets me the most frustrated and the other piece that gets me most frustrated is if you look at all of the the players right there was a, you know eight players i i feel that um is is named in this and 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 not one of them had the gumption or the knowledge or the courage or the confidence to step up and step in and not be a by, not be a bystander in this situation and say you know what guys geez, maybe we shouldn't do this, you know, and, and to me, I think, you know, when we look at those two things, I think that is the root of what has to change. I mean, we need to build people, we need to build a confidence for these young boys and young men to be better, to be the best that they can be. If we are propping them up to be role models, to wear our jersey, to be you know, that center of excellence, as we all talk about, and that we cheer on. Well, you know what, we're missing something, and we're missing the human side of teaching. And to me, that has to be number one before anything else. And I think that is where Hockey Canada has has missed the mark. Obviously, it's clear. Yeah, you're so eloquent. And, and really, you, you opened the door. You provided them with the opportunity to, to step forward and say, we have to make changes, and this has to now be the way that we do business. We'll hold people accountable and responsible, and we'll, and we'll direct a culture, and they haven't done that. Sheldon, at Respect Group, what do you what do? You do? What, uh, respect in the, in, the, in, the, in the sports arena, in life, is so important. How do you approach it with your organization? Well, what we've done, Roy, is um, we started a, a business. Uh, well, I guess I'll back up a little bit. In 1998, I rollerbladed across the country, and uh, we raised <clears throat> we raised uh, almost two million dollars um, for the issues of uh, abuse, sexual abuse, and and uh, we donated that money to the Canadian Red Cross. And at that time, the Canadian Red Cross was the only prevention training program that we knew of and they were building the speak out program for hockey Canada at the time they helped do that. So, um, yeah, I actually consulted with hockey for five years to help, uh, deliver that program across the country to all coaches and educate them on, you know, sexual abuse and, and, you know, what to do and the prevention program. And so what we tried to do was we said, you know, we can, we need to build a, a program that's, uh, for you know the 95 percent of great people or 98 percent of good people and make them better because one of the gaps that we knew was that you know if you walk up and down the street in any community or city and you ask people give me the definition of abuse bullying harassment discrimination your legal and moral responsibilities around it what do you think the odds are that we get the right answer and not very good so we set out to build an online um platform that could deliver this training uh, in a very empowering way. And our whole goal is to empower the bystander, is to make good people better. And so, you know, in, in, the, in hockey, we've, we've been working with Hockey Canada for 14 years. We've educated hundreds of thousands of coaches. Uh, we've educated, you know, over 550,000 parents. 
um, you know, in Ontario and other provinces and, and mandatory. And, you know, and that was one of the things. I mean, Hockey Canada has never made this mandatory. They've left it to the branches. They've left it to, you know, the 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 provinces to make this mandatory on their behalf. And so we've been up and down this country working with all the, you know, small town boards, the city boards, and working with the, the executive directors to do that. Now, you know, we have 70 sport organizations across this country that make it mandatory for all their coaches. Uh, Hockey Canada is one of them. Uh, our goal was to create one program. So if you coached four sports, you take it once and you port your information. But, you know, we, we morphed from sport into workplace. And uh, and that because we, we've trained so many volunteers, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. We're closing in on 2 million Canadians we've educated in this space. And, and, and they said that, you know, we need this in the workplace. So we created a workplace program. So now that's what we're delivering um, to the NHL with the contract with the NHL. And so, you know, if you look at it, our what we try to do, Roy, is is to bring a, we try to take researchers' knowledge, $26 words, yeah. you know, simplify them, break them down to the lowest common denominator and take these issues that carry a significant amount of fear and make them understandable and, okay. and give people the basics, your foundation trained, foundational training. So, Sheldon, you know. I, I apologize. I have to yeah, interrupt. No you know, the, the, it's the old thing with the big hand and the little hand. The clock always gets me. When it comes to this whole issue of energy, and I heard a clip from Christian Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, the other day, seemed to be saying, and I don't know if I'm misunderstood or not, but it seemed to me like the Deputy Prime Minister might have been suggesting that Canada was going to help out our allies with LNG. How are we going to do that? We don't have the export terminals. How are we going to do this? And and my guess is before the end of the year, we're going to hear that Germany is willing to pay for and build export terminals in this country. Anyway, there's, all, there's so much going on. And Russia is, you know, the Russians are right at the forefront of every story now. But Russia and Europe are nominally at loggerheads while Germany continues to buy natural gas from uh, from Russia. And, uh, and and Europe finds itself in an energy crisis. I'm s- I keep wondering whether Europe is the energy and the, rather the canary in the coal mine as far as the energy issue is concerned for this country. Professor Thierry Bro, the professor at Sciences Po in Paris, global expert on markets, the geopolitics of oil and gas and energy security, oil and gas expert at the French Energy Ministry where he was in charge of security of supply for the country of France, where they have nuclear power, so they're not as reliant on Russia as other European countries are. The Germans have nuclear power, but they just chose to turn it off. I don't understand. Uh, Thierry, thank you very much for coming on the program. Your uh, your op-ed um, in uh, Natural Gas World is Russia Pushes Europe to the Brink. Explain to us, please, just in fundamental terms, because you and I have talked about this a lot. What is Russia doing now? What's the reality now as far as Russia's relationship with Europe is concerned, and how is the Russian Federation, how's Putin pushing Europe to the brink? Thank you, Roy, for having me on the show. I think what you have to understand is that the diabolic trap that uh, Vladimir Putin just uh, uh, initiated and thought back many years ago is now closing on Europe. What is he doing? He's just pushing as little gas as possible right now in Europe, and we are at record low, and this is irrelevant of the turbine of Nord Stream 1. Remember the saga that was uh, back uh, in the news back a few weeks ago. And what he's doing is he makes sure that he can use this weaponization of gas for as long as possible. Interestingly enough, European leaders are on holidays. They've been very naive and they've been disunited. So they are weak. And the thing is, when we are going to come back from holidays, i.e. in a month's time, we will discover that we are way short of gas. And again, the markets are pricing gas today as we speak in Europe and if you compare this in barrels per barrel of oil, uh, the, the price of gas today in my country is $350 per barrel of oil equivalent. And this is in plain summer when we do not need gas. So think about what's going to come in September, October and November when Vladimir Putin will have winter with him. Yeah, I, when you say they're on vacation, it just makes me shudder because 
here we are. We're dealing with a crisis situation. You certainly are in Europe. Uh, dealing with a crisis situation, and the so-called leaders go on their summer vacation as though everything were nice and normal. And Putin is sitting in Moscow, and he'll make his decisions, and he knows very well what he's going to do or what his potential is, what his abilities are, and that is to just make Europe pay by cutting back on uh, on gas as the weather gets colder. And I hear you saying, and you've said it before, you think he's going to do that. Will we also see a situation, Thierry, where we might see European countries individually um, in conflict with each other over maintaining supply for their own citizens and to the um, you know to the detriment of other of other countries in the EU. That's exactly what Vladimir Putin wants: disunited Europe. And Europe has to understand this. And this is the major risk that we are facing: is just pushing enough gas right now for us to be asleep. But we are we sleepwalking into this massive energy crisis. I mean, the International Energy Agency is calling this the worst crisis since the 70s, and I think it's the worst energy crisis ever in humankind. 1970s, it was just oil. Exactly right. Now it's gas, electricity, and a little bit of oil. So Germany is the country that everyone seems to be focusing on, and we know the turbine story. We've talked about that. Do you have a sense that Germany is going to increase coal plant production? I think that would be significant for the, the whole world. Uh, and they've already started that. I, I know they're saying it's temporary. Do you think they may also return to nuclear power and return some of their nuclear plants into operation, given what they're facing? Well, Roy, I think that once you're in the dark and it's very cold, you start to think with your brain. And in this case, then you start to think, well, what do I need to generate electricity? And it's going to be coal, it's going to be nuclear, it's going to be everything possible if you want to try to keep your country warm and your industry at work. And unfortunately, this is not cold enough in Germany right now, but it will become cold enough and the leaders will find that the only solution is, unfortunately, more coal for the environment and fortunately more nuclear, but this will take time, uh, unfortunately. Thierry, would you, you've said to us in the past that you worry that there are going to be blackouts in Europe this winter. Now, that was maybe six or eight weeks ago you first said that to me on this program. What is your sense today, with all the developments that have taken place since that first conversation, what is your sense of what Europe is going to be facing when the winter cold really hits? Well, I still have the same opinion. I still think that Vladimir Putin has reduced and will continue to reduce the gas flows. As I told you, it's irrelevant of the turbine saga, and I think that at one stage we will have to cut. I mean, uh, right now you don't have, you can't have a warm shower in a swimming pool in Germany. Right now the police in Paris is making sure that shops, when they are air conditioning inside the shop, they do not leave the door open so the air conditioning doesn't uh, uh, go in the street. So those are the kind of thing. And this is just in plain summer when everybody is on vacation. So think of it, there will be blackouts in Europe, unfortunately. Wait a minute, police are making sure in Paris that yes. store doors are closed when the air conditioning is on. Yes, the police. because they need to make sure that we uh, use as little as energy as possible. Not the store manager, les gendarmes. No, no the gendarmes, yes, <laughs> the police. Wow. It's the law. It's the new law. I mean, this is the kind of thing we are going to face. I mean... Uh, in, in some city, there is no more swimming pool because they can't heat the water any longer. Those are the things that we are facing. And uh, think of the fertilizer industry. You had this great interview last week. I mean, the fertilizer industry in Europe is dead. We can't do it. Gas is way too expensive. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really uh, terribly alarming. Have you heard anything about Canada? Perhaps you have far better connections than I do on these issues. Have you heard anything at all about Canada potentially uh, cooperating with Europe and maybe becoming more active or becoming active, active period, in getting uh, natural gas to Europe? Well, as you stated, Roy, I mean, it's too late. I mean, uh, we late, need yeah. gas right now. I mean, the uh, and, and again, I think that leaders have been way too dogmatic. The only country that could have helped us, as I wrote in this op-ed, would have been UK if we were asked 
the UK government to increase uh, the turbine and the pressure in one pipe. We did it. And uh, in uh, starting from October, when winter starts, the UK doesn't have any uh, spare volume to send to Europe. So we are going to be very, very short of gas in the coming months, unfortunately. This is all very, very alarming, very concerning. And uh, I'm very put, concerned, boy. Yeah, I, 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 I can hear it. I'm, I'm, look, we're, we're, we're understanding what's happening in Europe. But in France, at least, you have. Do you not? You have nuclear power, significantly more nuclear power than other uh, European countries, with the exception particularly maybe of Germany, which is not using their nuclear power. Yes, you're right. I mean, France uh, in the 70s made this great choice of nuclear. Unfortunately, we have a bit of uh, some issues with some nukes. Uh, so half of them are right now non-operational, which, again, provides more leverage to Vladimir Putin because we have to go through maintenance and through some corrosion issues. And this is why Vladimir Putin has more power. Even the nuclear in France, 50% are non-operating for right now. So we're in August, September, October eight, ten weeks from now, it starts. Yes, and remember, Vladimir Putin normally cuts gas on the 1st of January yeah. when he does this. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I didn't have that information. The My team didn't have that information. You heard the deputy. The, the department didn't have that information. We had no information regarding the fact that there was lists specifically targeted Canadian diplomats and locally engaged staffing. So there's our foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, who knows nothing about uh, the story that members of the Canadian embassy staff in Kyiv were on Russian kill lists. Knows nothing about it. Well, possibly that's true, but it sounds awfully a lot like what happened in, uh, in Kabul. And the minister has said that uh, she would invite the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians to review the issue. Sounds good. Until you realize that when that particular committee files a, a report, the report goes to the PMO and to the Prime Minister of the day, and the Prime Minister of the day then has the power to redact as much as he or she wishes from that particular report. So <laughs> it's... Uh, Sometimes it's just following the breadcrumbs. Hi, everybody. It's the Roy Green Show. I'm back in the studio, not broadcasting from home anymore. I've put a little distance between us and COVID and testing. And, you know, if there's any symptoms, of course, you get tested. But uh, back in the studio, it's so much better. Oh, my God, it's so much better. I would sit in my house. First of all, I don't like doing the, the show from home. You're sitting at a table that, yeah, it's not meant for that. And... The equipment is okay, but it's not great. And then each time one of my neighbors fires up a pickup truck or a lawnmower, I've got to turn off the microphone. Anyway, wow, wow, wow. I hope you had a good week. I hope you'll stay with us for the weekend. There's a lot coming up today. Later on, we'll talk to Sheldon Kennedy. We uh, now know that the chair of the board for Hockey Canada, Michael Brindamore, is stepping down. And Mr. Kennedy is saying that... Uh, the entire board and the CEO and the management structure of Hockey Canada needs to step down. I think he's absolutely correct. We'll talk to Sheldon later on today. Anyway, let's get started with this, and it has to do with uh, the situation in Ukraine and Canada. And what we just heard the Foreign Affairs Minister say. Um, Boris Rezhnevsky is with me, former Liberal Member of Parliament, member of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. He sat with Justin Trudeau during Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's address to the Canadian Parliament. Mr. Trudeau invited Mr. Rezhnevsky to uh, be there. Boris, I'm sorry, I always, I always mangle your last name. I'm going to work on it. You're not the only one. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Roy. Before we talk about the embassy issue 
and what may have been known or not known in your sense of what may have gone on or not gone on, as far as kill lists are concerned from the Russians, can we just start with uh, Operation Unifier? So the federal government has said that they will resume working Operation Unifier in which Canadian forces train uh, Ukrainian forces. They'll do it in the U.K., sort of piggybacking onto a British military program. Um, I've never quite understood why we stopped doing that just before the Russians invaded Ukraine. But what do you know about the situation? What do you understand about it? And I know there's something you can share with us that perhaps most Canadians don't know about. Well, Roy, uh, you're you're quite right. There was an abandonment um, on a number of levels uh, prior to Russia's invasion. And everyone had information from the Americans that made it quite clear uh, what Russia's and Putin's intent was. It was a wholesale invasion. Uh, there were kill lists that were talked about publicly that the Americans uh, shared that information. Perhaps they didn't have specific names on those uh, lists, but it was quite clear uh, that uh, they were uh, extensive lists and what the consequences would be for those people. Uh, under Russian occupation, uh, and there was uh, perhaps uh, a panic to uh, to get out of Ukraine. Uh, so we weren't standing by Ukraine, um, and uh, the abandonment of long-serving Ukrainian uh, staff at Canada's embassy uh, is one example of that. Another example of abandonment um, was our uh, Operation Unifier project. Uh, probably the most substantive contribution that we've made to Ukraine's military, along with allies like the UK and the US and others. Uh, it has trained thousands of Ukrainian soldiers and uh, provided the Ukrainian armed forces with uh, a Western-level effectiveness in, fi uh, in fighting the Russians. Uh, unfortunately, what happened was a couple weeks prior to uh, Russia's invasion, uh, that project was shut down. So de facto, uh, at the time of Ukraine's greatest need, at the time of Ukraine's armed forces' greatest need, we shut down the operation. And uh, it's perhaps understandable that we'd want to move the locale of the training mission out of Ukraine. But there was no reason to, to abandon the whole operation and abandon Ukrainians. Uh, it could have been moved across the border to Poland or to another country. And, uh, in fact, there was a, uh, a conference call, public conference call, uh, with the Prime Minister, with uh, senior ministers of the Canadian government, and uh, many members, uh, leaders within the Ukrainian-Canadian community on the eve of uh, Russia's invasion, where I made that specific point to the Prime Minister. I said, Prime Minister, we have de facto shut down the most important mission and abandoned Ukraine and the Ukrainian armed forces. Why can we not talk with the Poles? And I, I was uh, on the phone from the UN uh, where I had spoken with the Polish uh, representation, uh, where I had made that suggestion. And I passed that information on. The Prime Minister uh, uh, turned it over to Minister Anand and uh, to look into it. Uh, Canadian officers, soldiers who were part of this mission, uh, went on to other countries, were sent out of countries, and the mission was wrapped up strategically a terrible mistake. If we were going to stand by our ally Ukraine, you don't abandon them on the eve of a war. You find other ways of doing it. Now, five and a half months on, uh, finally we have an announcement. Uh, and as you said, we're piggybacking off the Brits. The Brits, the Americans have had training missions, ongoing training missions for months. We haven't been able to get this off the ground. But it's announced on the morning before Minister Jolie, who, uh, uh, who uh, you, had uh, you had a recording of at the top of the show, uh, before a very embarrassing uh, committee hearing, 
uh, where uh, the government was called to task by the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, uh, by uh, 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 parliamentarians, uh, by uh, Ukraine's ambassador, and uh, I, it almost uh, has the appearance, and I was in the government, so I know how these things are done, uh, you try to put out a good news story ahead of a bad news situation. Uh, so the timing is suspect. It should have been done. It's five and a half months late, and it's not as if anyone had not connected the dots. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is clearly a second example of the abandonment of Ukrainians. So there are a lot of moving parts here, and I, I have to take a break in a moment, and then we'll talk more. But I just want to come back to something you said. Most Canadians are likely not aware, uh, as you just shared with us, Boris, that there was a conference call including the Prime Minister, and it wasn't a secret conference call, but it was a conference call, and this whole issue about the training mission for the Ukrainian military to be trained by the Canadian military was brought up, and the Prime Minister, you told us, turned it over to Minister Anand, the Defence Minister, and then it was shut down. That sounds to me like there was either a follow-up that was unsatisfactory, or there was no follow-up, and here we are. What I found interesting is that this training mission was announced to be uh, being resumed just days after Canada was, shall we say, criticized for falling behind on its UN commitments. Sometimes you just take the, the dots and you connect them and you have a story. But did you expect more, and I have to take a break in about 30 seconds, did you expect more from the Prime Minister or from that conference call you were on about Operation Unifier? Absolutely. Although I had seen the government on the inside, so I, I know that oftentimes there's a disconnect between our uh, public pronouncements of uh, the Prime Minister and others, uh, but everyone understood that this would be a war whose intent was to eradicate the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian people, a democratic country of 44 million. And we really, all of the leaders of the Ukrainian community felt that the Prime Minister was reaching out uh, because uh, he wanted to do something significant. Boris, when you hear th th this, this story, and, and I'm sure you know, I'm thinking you have a better idea, a better sense of what this is about than most of us. What's your take on what may have happened, or what's your take on what you think happened as far as this issue with the Canadian Embassy in Kiev is concerned? The fact that the minister is trying to preempt, uh, whether by tweets or by uh, raising it during a committee hearing, um, is interesting, and uh, she's trying to steer it in a particular direction to avoid embarrassment for the government. Because if it goes to National Security Intelligence Committee, uh, it does not report to Parliament. Uh, this will not be... Uh, publicly available information, and she's citing security reasons. Well, look, there are no security secrets here. Uh, it's an issue of uh, staff, long-serving staff, Ukrainian staff, uh, being put in serious jeopardy. Uh, so there are no secrets. It was public information at that time. Uh, so it should be looked at by a committee of parliament and reported back to parliament. Uh, if, uh, by any chance, there's some uh, security-sensitive uh, security information, uh, a committee can obviously go in camera. Uh, but it's trying to direct it away so there's an appearance of transparency um, and accountability when, in fact, there isn't. So that deals with that particular part of it. But it's what had happened, and time will hopefully reveal uh, whose decisions these were, uh, but fundamentally, it's morally reprehensible. We've abandoned uh, Afghan translators to Taliban killers, and we uh, had made a decision to abandon uh, Ukrainian uh, staffers to uh, F uh, FSB assassins and torturers. And if they're concerned about security, where was that concern uh, when it came to those staffers? Uh, some of those staffers had served over a decade. Uh, I know some of them personally. 
and uh, they have served Canada so well, and served Cana- they've served Canadians who've gotten themselves in trouble uh, so well over the years. Uh, but beyond that, uh, they are privy to uh, sensitive, high-level, secure information. Uh, they have that sort of trust. They work closely with the ambassadors, the various ambassadors, and multiple ambassadors. I was in meetings, uh, uh, closed-door meetings, between uh, ministers from Canada and ministers in Ukraine, where they took part in those meetings. Uh, there were meetings between prime ministers and Ukraine's presidents, where these staffers were present. What a coup that would be for the FSB to capture some of these uh, Ukrainian staffers from the Canadian embassy. The FSB torturers uh, would go to work on them, and they would have the sort of insights that would prove invaluable. So, of course, the moral malleability uh, uh, that we're seeing from the government, and uh, it's, it's reprehensible. Uh, we should have taken a principled stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, geez, we, it goes without saying. We, they, sure. they even took the artwork out of the residence of the ambassador yeah. to make sure that that got packed up. And I have to. I just have abandoned to abandon the people. I have to jump in here it's because a security of the question as well. Yeah, I have to jump in because of the time. But I just want to say this: we knew as that invasion was coming, we'd been hearing that there were kill lists of Ukrainians that the Russians had. And I thought at the time, well, you know, embassy staff, I did. I thought embassy staff would be particularly vulnerable. And here we are with a foreign affairs minister who it appears to me is way over her head as far as her skill sets are concerned. And, um, and, and, and she's professing not to know anything. The entire department doesn't know anything, but the whole country's talking about it. It doesn't work. Three weeks ago, we spoke with Ron Dalton, co-president of Innocence Canada about innocent Canadians being convicted of crime and the presence of capital punishment in the criminal justice systems, South Carolina, a judge in South Carolina, is going to decide in the next few days, listen to this, if firing squad or electrocution death penalties are acceptable. Four death row inmates argued this week that prisoners would feel terrible pain either way. State lawyers argue the condemned would feel no pain. From 1995 to 2011, South Carolina carried out the death penalty on 36 people, all by lethal injection. Now, the state's supply of lethal drugs expired in 2013, and pharmaceutical companies have refused to sell more lethal injection drugs to them. So Ron Dalton is back with us, co-president of Innocence Canada, who was wrongfully convicted of second-degree murder of his wife and who spent almost nine years in prison before the circumstances of his guilty verdict and the methods used to charge Mr. Dalton and convict Mr. Dalton were found to be at great fault. They're wrong. Innocence Canada works constantly to help individuals in Canadian prisons who are innocent to be returned to freedom. And uh, currently, Innocence Canada has 10 cases before the federal justice minister. So back with us is Ron Dalton. Ron, thank you very much for for taking the time um, when you hear the story, like the story that's coming out of South Carolina, what, what's your thinking right away? Well, first, good afternoon, Roy, to you and your listeners. Uh, we, we hear a lot about the death penalty in the U.S., and, and I'm not sure that the method matters all that much. Most of the research suggests that a firing squad may be more efficient and, and painless uh, compared to uh, electrocutions, uh, particularly when they go wrong. But from from my own personal point of view, of course, I, I can't condone the, best, the death penalty anywhere, knowing that the courts do get it wrong. Yeah. There's, there's just too much potential there to execute innocent people. Yeah. You've been a guest on this program on several occasions. I have. David Milgard, who sadly died a few months ago, spent 23 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, was on the show. Robert Baltovich, who spent eight years in prison for a murder he did not commit, all, all of you have been guests with me, others as well. Ron, let's just get to the chase here. Are there convicted individuals in prison across this country who are innocent of the crimes they were convicted of? Absolutely. I, I was one of those that you mentioned, a couple of others, uh, David, in particular, I mean, David was convicted back in 1969 at a time when this country still had a death penalty. 
10 years before David's conviction, we convicted a 14-year-old Stephen Truscott to yeah. hang by the neck until dead yeah. for a, a crime that he did not commit, death of a 12-year-old classmate. So yes, there's, there certainly are uh, individuals in our prison systems who are innocent, which means in, in many instances that there are people who have committed uh, murder who are running free. And, and David Milgard's case is always one of the better examples of that. Uh, while David spent 23 years in prison and a further six years on parole before we were able to exonerate him and prove his innocence, the actual perpetrator, Larry Fisher, had 30 years to run amok in, in society. So not only is the individual and their family suffering horrendously for wrongful convictions, but the, the public at large is, is put at risk. Yeah, the public at large is very much at risk because it happened to you, but under the circumstances that happened to you and in which your wife lost her life, that could have been anybody, anywhere, any postal code in Canada. That's sad but true, Roy. Uh, we, uh, you mentioned that we currently have 10 cases in front of the Justice Minister in, in Ottawa for review and relief, hopefully. Uh, those are cases where we've demonstrated the person's innocence, and the only remedy then is to go to the federal minister and get him to overturn the conviction, uh, possibly order a retrial, which quite often doesn't go ahead. Uh, but on top of that, we have another 109 cases that we're reviewing in our office at Innocence Canada. And we're a small nonprofit organization, so we have limited resources. So we do the best we can, but there is no other national organization doing this type of work in this country. So when all of your appeals have appeals have failed, the court system has uh, got it wrong repeatedly. By the time the case gets to us, we're, we're the last chance you have it. And sometimes we work on cases for many, many years. Uh, I, I mentioned to you the other day that, uh, that we're currently finalizing a case for two gentlemen that I served time with 30 years ago. Back in, in 1990 and 91, I was... Uh, typing up letters and, and helping these guys with a bit of paperwork, uh, writing to the, the media and to their lawyers, and we're just now uh, getting to the point where we hope to have their cases resolved within the next six months or so. And you weren't but, just a visitor to the prison. You were in there. Well, you're, you're there. You, you do what you can to help people if, yeah. if you can. You know, yeah. you got to mind your own business and keep your mouth shut for the most part. It's a, a good way to get through a place like that, yeah. but if I was able to help out a little bit, even if it was only writing a letter or uh, doing a little bit of correspondence or something for somebody, I, I tried to do that as well. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that you weren't going into the prison as a representative of Innocence Canada. You were convicted yourself. You were in that prison. You were innocent of the crime you'd been convicted of, and you were helping people at that time in 90 and 91 who were also convicted of a crime they did not commit. Our, our organization, Innocence Canada, was, was previously known as the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted. Yeah. We just shortened our name up a few years ago to try and make it a little more representative. But we didn't exist as an organization until 1993. So I, I went into uh, the federal prison system in 1989, so yes, three or four years before our organization existed. And there were other people. Joyce Milgard, for example, was working diligently on David's Case. Yes, she was. Joyce, Joyce being his mother, of course, was working diligently on David's case before Innocence Canada existed. Now, when she was successful in getting David paroled, uh, Innocence Canada got involved, and, and we were able to do some early, in those days, 30 years ago, DNA testing that eventually uh, demonstrated clearly and, and convincingly that uh, David had no part in this crime and was also able to identify the actual perpetrator which is not the business that Innocence Canada is in. We're not there to solve crimes, but sometimes it's a secondary product of the work we do. In, in proving your innocence, we may prove someone else's guilt. And it was DNA evidence that exonerated you. They found out eventually, if they, they found out that you had not committed the crime. You, you, your wife died. You're mourning for your wife, the mother of your three children, and you're uh, facing um, a less than competent medical system and a less than competent justice system that put their pieces together f in a faulty manner and sent you to prison for, for murder. Correct. Now, the, the only correction there is, is it was not DNA that was finally exonerated me. It was a, an accumulation of expert forensic opinions 
just saying that the original pathologist who conducted my wife's autopsy uh, was not qualified, didn't know what he was doing, and, and couldn't justify the conclusions that he that he raised. Yeah, he'd never done one before, right? Uh, no, no. And then we had a and hospital. you go to prison. <laughs> we, we had a medical student in charge of the uh, emergency room at the hospital who had never put a breathing tube or intubated a live patient who attempted it and, and ended up putting a tube into her stomach rather than towards her her uh, lungs and inflated her like a balloon. But oh the, the reality is that once the system, the pathologist, the police, have their mind made up and they're heading in a certain direction, uh, it's easier to turn the Titanic around and, and avoid the iceberg than it is to get them to change their minds and admit that they may have been wrong. All they had to do in, in my particular case was get a second opinion from someone who was qualified, and they would have known that there was no crime committed. But they had we, you. We've had a number of cases like that. Uh, we, we had a series of Charles Smith cases in Ontario. Uh, Smith was practicing as a pediatric forensic pathologist, again, without any formal training, and he got several cases wrong. He found crimes where there were none. Yeah. These are children that, you know, crib deaths and, and other things. I remember. He was thinking were uh, homicides, and, and in some cases, people spent a dozen years or more in, in prison, lost custody of their children, horrendous stories. Destroys but lives. They're actually being convicted for crimes that didn't occur. In cases like the Milgard case, uh, you know, there was a crime. They just got the wrong person. Ron, I'm going to take a quick break here, then. When we come back, I want to talk to you about it. And we want to let people know how they can become engaged with Innocence Canada, because the work you're doing is so fundamentally essential but I also want to ask you what it's like to wake up in prison day after day, month after month, year after year, knowing you're innocent of murdering your wife, which, which is what they which is what they convicted you of. You wake up every day, you know you're innocent. Just very quickly, said this to you the other day. I talked to David Milgard um, when we first started conversing many years ago, and I asked him, David, when they came to you after 15 years in prison and they said to you, just confess to the to the murder. Just 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 plead guilty to the murder, and we'll 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 parole you. And he wouldn't do it. And I asked him why didn't you? You spent another eight years of your life in prison, and his answer was so simple and so eloquent. He said, "I didn't do it." That's the reality, Roy. Yeah, Ron. When you woke up every morning, every day for eight years knowing you had not committed any crime, let alone murder your wife. What's that like? Well, Roy, I, I tend to go back to David Milgard again. My, my friend David was very, uh, very quotable. I've heard David speak. I've, I've spoken with him on occasion. He always described prison as a horrible place, and he's right. Uh, whether you're guilty or innocent, prison is a horrible place to be spending your time. Ten times worse if you're there uh, undeservedly. In my own particular case, I still had my three children uh, back in the real world, outside of prison, living with my sister and her husband and their three children, and they were in touch with their family members on my wife's side and, and my side. So I had a little something to focus on on the other side of the prison walls, so I didn't get quite as despondent and, and wrapped up in some of the games that go on inside of the, of the prison world, and, and particularly in maximum security prisons. So that gave me a little lifeline to the real world, I used to say, and that helped me get through it. But it's, it's a very difficult place to be. It's, it's a lot of wasted time. There's enforced idleness, all kinds of things that I wasn't used to. And then, of course, the fact that you don't belong there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Very difficult. How do you decide at Innocence Canada that you will accept someone's argument, accept their case, represent them, to try to get them um, declared innocent, or at least have their case reviewed? It's, it's a long and difficult process most of the time. We rarely have DNA evidence to go on. Even in David's case, David Milgard's case, it took six years to get the DNA evidence processed because it was fairly early, back in the early 90s when, when that happened. Now we have access to DNA testing a little quicker. So on those rare occasions where we have DNA evidence, we can move somebody to the front of the line and push it through to the minister and say, this, this looks wrong. More often, we have to evaluate cases that have been, uh, where the person has been found guilty by a jury, usually of, of their peers after a trial. They've been through one or two levels of appeal at least and lost on all of those. So we're starting over way behind the eight ball. The person is no longer 
considered presumed innocent. They're just the opposite. They're presumed to be guilty. The onus is then on the client or on, on us as the representative to demonstrate their innocence, and that's tough to do, particularly on cases like the one that I, I mentioned of these two gentlemen that, uh, that I was working on their case 30 years ago. Their case has been going on for 38 years. Gee. So you can just imagine trying wow. to go back and finding original documents, trying to talk to witnesses who may, longer, may no longer be alive. It's a very, very uphill process, and we make sure that we uh, turn over all the rocks, do a very thorough investigation before we ever go to the minister and say, listen, we believe we have a case of innocence here because we don't want to tarnish our own reputation. We have, happen to have an enviable batting record. Uh, we haven't had a case that we've sent up that has not been successful, but we've spent years and years developing some of these cases. And once again, we're doing all this as a nonprofit uh, organization, uh, so anybody out there that would like to help out Innocence Canada, we we have a website. You simply uh, uh, search the, uh, the term Innocence Canada, and our website will pop up. We're constantly fundraising, as most nonprofits are. You spend half of your time raising funds to exist, and the other half then trying to do the good work that you're doing. Innocence Canada, and uh, just do a search, and you'll find it. And uh, if you can contribute, they do just absolutely tremendous work. And we're not talking about getting the Paul Bernardo's of the world out. I, oh. I told you the other day when we were talking, it wouldn't bother me a bit if they slipped a noose over his head. Um, but, you know, it's, it's people who are innocent. It's people who don't deserve to be in prison, who did not commit a crime. And the system and convicted them. The, the other side of that coin that gets missed sometimes is we're also helping when we, when we get an innocent person, an innocent person out of prison, yeah. we allow the police and the prosecutors to focus on getting the the crime properly investigated and prosecuted. Yeah, they true. Got it wrong the first time. There's probably somebody out there who's got away with murder as well. Yeah. Well, Larry Fisher, right? Larry Fisher is a prime example, sure. Regulatory um, decision made by the uh, current government, federal government, if you hadn't heard, is moving ahead with a regulatory, regulatory ban on the importation of all restricted handguns. And that becomes effective on the 19th of August. This is being done without parliamentary approval. All right, so let me repeat that. So on August 19, there will be a regulatory ban on the importation of all restricted handguns. Handguns are restricted anyway. And they're doing it without parliamentary approval. There is a summer break underway and so while debate began on what's known as Bill C-21, on this whole issue, while it was suspended for the summer vacation, the foreign affairs minister, here she is again, Melanie Jolie, and Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister, who still, I think, has questions to answer about police having advised on the Emergencies Act, but anyway... Ms. Julie and Mr. Mendicino have worked together to put together this regulatory restriction ban on the uh, importation of handguns. Not by individuals like you and you and you, who may have done all the regulatory requirements, passed them all, and uh, you have the licenses. No, it's the long in business firearms dealers who are not now able to uh, get the, the handguns into the country, or at least by the 19th of August. The debate on, uh, on C-21 will continue after the summer break. So uh, in Mr. Bernardo's absence, Tony Bernardo, executive director of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, if you know him, give him a call. <laughs> We're trying get them on this program. I, I was in touch with Tony this morning because I know they want to talk about this. So we have Mr. Bernardo. Where were you? Where was I? Well, it's a long story, but I've lost soul reception. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, here you are. Good to talk to you. How are you? I'm good, my friend. How are you? I'm well, Mr. Bernardo. So I've been trying to set this up as we've been trying to reach you. So we have the, uh, the minister... Uh, Melanie Jolie and Marco Mendicino, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Public Safety Minister, coming up with this regulatory move that bypasses Parliament, whereas of the 19th of August, if you're a licensed gun dealer, you may not uh, bring into the country any longer any prohibited uh, handguns. Well, aren't they all essentially, or restricted? Aren't they all restricted? You still there, Tony? 
Okay. Did so, I lose you again? Well, you did, and now we hear you again. Can, can you just <laughs> can you just stay in one place? I am. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So, okay. you know, in 1969, I think it was, they put two men on the moon, one, one man, two men on the moon. First one, then the other, and they were dancing around and running around, and there was golf played on the moon. We still can't get these damn phones to work properly. That's right. You still can't make a cell phone that works under a bridge. Yeah, or wherever you are. <laughs> so, so, so what's your sense? What's your response to the move by the federal government? Well, I mean, this is really, really crass. The reason that they did this was because back when the liberals drafted the Firearms Act, they put a safeguard into the Firearms Act that would not permit regulation to be used frivolously. So any regulation submitted into the Firearms Act has to sit before Parliament for 30 days so Parliament can examine the regulation. Well, what they've done is they took the regulation and put it through from the foreign affairs people on the import-export branch. And, and that way it doesn't have to sit before the House of Commons because the original regulation they did, which would prohibit the sale, uh, that regulation is not going to clear the House of Commons until the beginning of October because of the number of sitting days. So what they figured out was how to do an end run on their own legislation. This is legislation that the previous liberal government had come up with. So what I don't understand is what's the emergency? Because the bill is still going to be debated after the summer break, as you pointed out. Um, It's not going to disappear. But suddenly we have two ministers who are passing a regulatory move, um, which we've just described, and uh, and and it worries me. It just fundamentally, it concerns me when Parliament is bypassed for whatever reason. Well, I mean, fundamentally, it worries. It should worry all Canadians. I mean, that's what the safeguards of Parliament are for, so that this stuff is not used frivolously. They 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 did the provision in the Firearms Act, that thirty day provision, so that things couldn't be done on a whim. They had to be given that sober second thought. Yeah. And now they've completely bypassed them. And as you say, what's the rush? Like We're talking weeks. Happening. We're talking weeks. We're talking weeks. We're also talking about the fact that just a few years ago, they, quote, banned all of their so-called assault weapons. And everybody still has them. They haven't collected a single one, and it's been... A couple of years now. Why are they doing this, do you think? Oh, votes, of course. You know, why, why do they breathe air? So, I mean, so you, you, do you think that this is a move that's going to be popular with a significant majority of people in this country? I think it might be popular with a significant majority of liberal voters. Hmm. Uh, because most of them really don't recognize what the real situation is vis-a-vis legal firearms ownership in, in Canada. And, and so they're fed this constant diet of uh, fear and how we're going to safeguard our streets by cracking down, cracking down on people who didn't break the law in the first place. Otherwise, they wouldn't have firearms licenses. It's not but going to do anything. Look. It's not going to do anything, Tony, to stop the importation of illegal handguns. No, it's not designed to. It's not designed to. It's designed to be a really, really good-looking, feel-good piece of legislation they can trot out for their voters. Do you smell an election in the air, Roy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No question. Yeah, me too. So tell me this uh, final question for you. How many registered firearms owners are there in this country? There are 2.2 million registered firearms owners in the country. And answer this question for me. What are the hoops you have to jump through to obtain a license to purchase a, a handgun? Well, okay, for, for a handgun, you have to take two courses. The first course is for a non-restricted firearm. The second course is for a restricted firearm. Um, those two courses take place, so they can do them as fast as two days, sometimes longer. And then you make an application for your firearms license after you've 
successfully graduated the course. They check you out through your local police, provincial police, federal police, CSIS, and Interpol. And if you come back with a clean bill of health on all those, then you have to go through a uh, a wait a period a 28 day waiting period, and then they begin the process of actually issuing you the license. It takes months and months. After you got it, you go into a program the RCMP calls continuous eligibility, and in that program, your firearms license is run through every single police computer in Canada once a day, every day to see if there's anything in the police computers in Canada. Well, I'm... Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 